Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. Today we're talking about state violence in China. It's a subject that has become increasingly visible over the last few weeks. Footage of people suspected of having temperatures, possible COVID-19 sufferers, pictures of them being dragged off screaming by people in hazmat suits have emerged from China. And the subject of structural violence has come to the forefront, both because of developments in Xinjiang, where an estimated one million people are in political indoctrination camps, and in Hong Kong, where a movement protesting structural violence has been treated with breathtaking violence from the police. It's a subject both of our guests have researched for years, in rural China, in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang. Today we're joined by Lynette Ong, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto, and Michael Clark, Associate Professor at the National Security College of the Australian National University. Lynette, let's start with you. I mean, we keep seeing these images of people with temperatures being dragged off into vans by people in hazmat suits. And it's just so reminiscent of all these dystopian films. I mean, what are your thoughts when you see these images? It makes me think about overzealous implementation of policies because local officials and local authorities are often under a lot of pressure to get to get things done. And in this case, uh, they will probably get punished, most likely get punished, if an infected person uh, wander around the neighbourhood not being quarantined. So they are likely to err on the side of caution, just round up anybody uh, who could possibly be infected. So the Chinese term here is round up anybody who, who should be rounded up. So local cadres, they they are under a lot of pressure to implement policies effectively to, to get things done. The problem here is that they get punished, severely punished, if you have infected person wander around the neighborhood. And that's, you know, part of the cadre evaluation system, part of Chinese governance system, how higher up would actually uh, evaluate and assess uh, local officials. And in COVID-19, something as serious as this, we can't uh, imagine that pressure put on local authorities is enormous, and these will likely lead to overzealous implementation of policies. Um, Michael, I mean, one of your colleagues, James Liebold, he, he wrote in a recent article that, that state violence is, is sort of a way of sorting the citizenry. So if you're a certain type of citizen, you're then vulnerable to being subjected to a certain type of violence or coercion. I mean, this, with this COVID-19 situation, are, are you sort of seeing almost a change in that, that in the past, violence that might have been reserved for dissidents or minorities is now being applied to uh, ordinary people, including, um, it seems, the grid management system? Yeah, yeah I mean, this is a, it's an excellent point an excellent question um, in terms of for instance the the way in which that high-tech surveillance system has been rolled out in Xinjiang I mean there's quite a bit of documentation now about how that has occurred and, and the particular effects of that and this is something I think James Liebold makes in, in the paper you refer to is that if we're thinking here about these modern forms of technologically enabled surveillance sort of counterposed to sort of old-style manpower centric uh, localized surveillance is that the, the the sort of more high-tech 
a variety is really about drilling down to that individual level. So in the past, um, sort of the face-to-face surveillance was much more about isolating particular groups or subsets of the population, whereas now uh, the technological advances enable the state at least theoretically, um, to have much more data on specific individuals, their movements, um, the history of their contacts, then social networks and so on. So it's a much more individualised approach in theory. Again, I mean, there are, of course, there's there's uh, evidence to suggest that it's not as foolproof or as, as straightforward as some of the official rhetoric suggests, for instance, about the rollout of various aspects of, you know, so, so-called social management uh, in China. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about that uh, that slogan, round up those who should be rounded up. Is it correct that that's the same slogan that has been used in Xinjiang, Michael? Uh, yeah, that's right. So that was uh, just a number of years. I think it was 20, 2016 or 2017. And that sort of brings up, I think, some of those New York Times leaks, you know, the documentation leaks out of, out of Xinjiang and sort of reaffirms uh, Lynette's point before about the pressure that local uh, officials have been placed under across China. But certainly in the Xinjiang example, you had uh, one of those document leaks specifically relating to the investigation of a particular official who was charged with sort of slackening off um, the re-education process and the detention of particular individuals because he had some sort of doubt about uh, the trajectory of state policy and, and in the sense that it wasn't really about you know an altruistic idea of relaxing control, but it was really just a careerist concern that, okay, if I do certain things, may I be punished in, in the future if things turn out differently. Yeah, and it's a fascinating phrase because the first time I came across it was in um, rural China when they were collecting the agricultural tax, which used to be an incredibly violent and coercive act, basically people going from household to household, shaking people down. But then the phrase referred to money, not to humans. So so this right. extension of it from things to people um, seems a really interesting change. I think it just goes into um, addresses the, the very core of Chinese bureaucratic culture that uh, when you're asked to do something, you have to do it very enthusiastically, be it people or money or, or any resources out, mm. out there, right? Yeah, I wanted to ask about this messaging that we're seeing. I mean, the idea of a people's war, of waging war against COVID-19 seems to be useful in allowing, uh, justifying the use of violence. What can we glean, in Lynette, from the type of state messaging that we're seeing regarding COVID-19? I think that's an interesting question. Um, So I see the state approach to combating the virus as one of resorting to what the CCP knows best, which is the Maoist campaign-style type of uh, approaches and governance. So what they are doing is really mobilizing society and mobilizing the masses to fight the virus. So you, it is named People's War. So it is, it is not the CCP's war. It is not the bureaucracy's war. It is the People's War. This is about mobilizing the people, mobilizing the masses to fight the virus. And in terms of the People's War, you think about um, Great Leap Forward. You think about Cultural Revolution. Uh, you use all sorts of means necessary and justified. Nothing is unjustified in order to fight, to fight the virus. Michael, how do you see this? Do you think this messaging is effective here? Do you think people are behind the use of violence if necessary in a people's war against the virus? The way that I see it, and maybe this is tainted a little bit by 
um, I suppose, my view and perspective on what's been happening in Xinjiang is, you know, the, the particular language that's used here, you know, the people's war phrase has been trotted out in Xinjiang as well. In 20, uh, 2011 and then 2014, there was going to be a, a people's war on terror, terrorism and the so-called three evils in Xinjiang. And since then, it's sort of morphed into this kind of biopolitical language um, that terrorism, extremism, and so on, these social pathologies that have to be excised from society. So it's kind of interesting now to say, okay, well, this language now is being used against a, a, a biological threat in terms of COVID-19. So it's interesting to see the parallels there, but I'm unsure as to what the effectiveness of that is. As, as Lynette said, the CCP, and, and again, there are parallels here with Xinjiang, is reverting in a sense to type, is that these are the approaches that that it kind of knows almost by second nature is this mass mobilisation campaigns, the sort of classical Maoist mass line approach that was perfected um, during the CCP's uh, rise to power. The question, though, is how effective is that going to be when you're combating something that is not from the body of society itself. Right. I mean, this, this, right. is, this is... Precisely. Yeah, and so there's, there's a distinction here that it's kind of interesting to think about. I mean, the party has always been very effective right. in, right. in mobilising right. and carrying out that struggle, as they right. like to say. Right. So, so I agree. I think, um, I think what happened probably three weeks to a month ago, the death of one of the whistleblowers, Dr. Li Wenliang, I think it really highlighted the fact that I don't think people are really buying into the slogan of people's warfare against the virus. Uh, we see a massive digital uprising uh, after the death of one of the whistleblowers, Dr. Li Wenliang. Outpouring of emotions from grief to anger and people were calling for freedom of speech, but that was quickly censored and then, you know, the, po um, the, the uh, posts get taken down. I'm actually not sure whether the state is winning uh, the propaganda war this time around. Um, I think until until very recently it has been effective, but this coronavirus, it is. Uh, I see this as a quite a major challenge for the party. Mm. And Michael, I'm thinking about your research in Xinjiang. You've taken a fairly long um, historical view of what's gone on there with the state extending its um, control over the region. How has this rollout of internment camps since 2016 changed the way the state uses violence um, in Xinjiang? Again, and there's, uh, it's taken that sort of long historical view. Um, obviously, the, the notion of re-education and a variety of different formulas by which the party has framed it, of course, has been part of the party's history uh, for a very long time, of course, stretching back to the rectification campaigns under Mao during the Civil War with the, with the Guomindang. But if, in that sort of post-1949 period, you have a number of different phases where the state has attempted via different means to coerce or co-opt, um, particularly ethnic minority populations, um, to at least acquiesce into the party's integration of Xinjiang uh, with the rest of, with the, rest of the, the PRC. And so you have sort of cycles and waves of particular policies and cycles of, of, of repression and reaction and so on. Um, but what's striking, I think, about the re-education process, the system that's been established around it, so not just the camps, but also the system of so-called forced labour that's associated with it. For instance, the recent uh, report that was released by, by Aspie uh, just uh, over the last couple of days, and that details very nicely what's going on here. And I think there's a link to this issue of structural violence as well, because when we talk about coercion, we immediately sort of think of, you know, kinetic violence, physical violence, um, that you're actually forcing someone either to do something or you're eliminating them. 
However, I think what's been more important in Xinjiang over time are these longer forms of structural violence. So, for instance, the long-term demographic change in Xinjiang that has been encouraged directly and indirectly by state policy. Uh, so changing the ethnic balance, the ethnic makeup of Xinjiang has been important. But also in terms of the re-education camps, what the way my perspective here is is really around this issue. Again, building off some of James Liebold's comments uh, that you referred to before, is that this idea of of shaping and and, and actually changing uh, particularly target particular target populations, which seem which is the essence of the concept of re-education is that you know you, re, you remould and transform their mentalities to become uh, to to to, ha- to induce behaviours that are in line with what the party state at that point in time conceives of to be either quote unquote normal uh, or even de- indeed modern in the case of of Xinjiang for instance so there's a focus in the re-education camps on having individuals not speak Uyghur they must learn Mandarin uh, they cannot. Uh, profess or practice uh, Islam and other cultural practices. So it's a way of erasing, in a sense, uh, what the party seems to have defined uh, as almost a cultural deviancy mm. within a particular subset of the population. Yeah. So I think that's that's what makes the re-education camps so interesting, but also, um, I think, very frightening as well. I'm really glad you mentioned that report because one thing that seems to come through in it is that these camps are sort of morphing into... Um, for-profit um, centres, that they're basically becoming a source of cheap Uyghur labour and Uyghur and other minority labour um, for uh, supply chains. So, I mean, could you say in some ways that the state is, as Lynette has shown in her research, starting to outsource um, the coercion and the violence to, uh, to you know, for-profit entities? Yeah, again, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, I think what some of the, the details in that report and also the work of Darren Byler, um, who's done a great deal of work on this, it, what, what that shows is this connection between some of those longer-term forms of structural violence that are referred to and the issue that you're talking about, this kind of outsourcing of the coercive capacity of, of, the, sorry, of, of the state, is that you now have uh, this linkage between the state's goal of transforming this subset of population. So the notion here is that, in effect, the the Uyghurs, sort of an undifferentiated monolithic group uh, that we call call the Uyghurs, have to be forcibly, in a sense, modernised here. And what the party means by this is that they have to be uh, normalised to uh, what the party conceives of as, quote-unquote, modern behaviours, techniques uh, and skills. And so you have this funnelling of re-education camp populations into associated industrial parks and, 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 and factories to undertake various forms of menial labour and piecework uh, that are then fed into global supply chains. And the state has also actively facilitated uh, various corporations, certainly Chinese state-owned entities, but also private entities, has incentivised them to come to Xinjiang to set up these industrial parks and facilities that are usually or often co-located uh, quite near uh, known re-education facilities. Um, so there's an interesting crossover here between what we might perceive as the long-term goal of the state, which is integration of Xinjiang, not only physical integration of the region, but the integration of the people that populate it uh, to make them for want of a better term, more Chinese. Uh, And this crosses over with, uh, I suppose, those economic incentives uh, here as well. 
So it sounds like what's happening in Xinjiang is a lot more coordinated from the national um, central level. But the violence that I look at is probably a little bit different in two aspects. One is the non-violence of the violence is actually just as important because we are talking about threat of violence. So intimidation sometimes works just as effectively as violence does. Um, so you don't actually have to use violence. You just have to threaten to use violence. And that could coerce people uh, into, into compliance just as effectively. And second thing is, I, th- I think what is happening um, in the rest of China outside Xinjiang is, I suspect, not as well coordinated. Um, a lot of this is very ad hoc basis. Uh, for instance, you know, getting people to round up uh, infected um, patients, um, getting people to evict, to, to knock on someone's door at 2 a.m. in the morning in order to get them to vacate their properties. A lot of this is done on a very ad hoc basis, uh, not well coordinated. And these people are hired on a day-to-day basis or on a project basis, definitely not nationally co- coordinated. So it seems that, you know, if we speak of structural violence in China, there are two things going on at two different levels. In Xinjiang, a lot more nationally planned as to how different ethnic groups should be integrated according to some national policies and national goals. But for the rest of China, it is really the local authorities that are doing the outsourcing of violence for their own purposes. Because they have got targets to meet not well coordinated by the cent- with the central government. Uh, quite opposite, actually, because the central government uh, will probably uh, punish them for, for what they do if they are caught. Lynette, you've been writing a lot about this whole issue of thugs for hire, um, people who perform the state's dirty work, as you say, that 2 a.m. knock on the door. But is there any way of measuring just how often this happens, how widespread this is, if it's happening more in Xi Jinping's China than it did in Hu Jintao's China and the kind of larger trends. Right. I So I have put together a data set of uh, violence um, in various aspects. So there's definitely a lot of um, selection bias because we only see when people report the violence and when things get reported. Overall, there has been declining trend in protests and use of you know violent coercion to get things done in the last couple of years. But this could be because uh, there's a decline in urbanization projects, there's a decline in construction, there's a decline in eviction, uh, because there's a slowdown in supply as well as as demand. There's less of these outsourcing of coercion going going on, but. Having said that, I suspect that local authorities these days are even are under even greater pressure to get things done because they are more revenue starved compared to a couple of years ago because the sources of revenue are really drying up, but they still have as much work to do. So, you know, to answer your question, there is some there is some measurement. Um, I'm I'm currently uh, doing more work in this area, just trying to mine data from 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 the data set that I have been uh, collecting. Overall, there is a declining trend, but there's also kind of structural uh, reasons behind the decline. So, I mean, Lynette, this is something I saw a lot in my fieldwork in, in rural Anhui. I mean, local thugs were brought in from across the border, um, working hand in hand with property developers. And it was almost a, a weekly thing. But this angered local farmers so much that you would see all kinds of behaviour you would never normally see. Um, in one village, they got, um, they waited till the local policeman was off duty and they beat him up. 
and basically said, oh, sorry, without your uniform on, we didn't recognise you. We thought you were one of these these local thugs for hire. Um, so doesn't this sort of behaviour really come at a huge cost to the legitimacy of the local state, that, that farmers can be so angry that they no longer fear the agents of the local state? I mean, why, why do they do this? I know they have to get things done, but surely they see it comes at a cost. I think there are benefits and costs. I think the benefits are it gets things done very quickly and efficiently and effectively that Michael has has mentioned before. But there are also costs. Costs as in there's financial cost of hiring people. But I think the financial cost of hiring people is lower than paying for a full police force that could do the job. But the the other cost is, if you think about uh, the cost of getting the police to do the dirty job, uniform police to do the dirty job versus sending a, an unidentified agent, i.e. thugs, to do that job. I think in both cases, you have this decline in legitimacy. But in the thuggish case, the decline in legitimacy is arguably still lower than sending in a uniform police. Um, so, you know, different consideration, benefits and costs, plus and minus. If you add it up, I think overall ledger will tell you that costs are uh, no, Benefits outweigh costs, so it still gets uh, implemented that way. It still gets the job done. And who's paying for these thugs? Is it always the developer? Um, so in 2011, there's a major change in, in demolition law. Before that, uh, companies were in charge of demolition. So things were a lot more violent before 2011. After 2011, local authorities are the only people who could do demolition. So we see a decline in violence, but but then you know local Local authorities then outsource violence to private companies to get demolition done. So it's it's a longer chain, um, but the chain of command starts with local authorities after 2011. Um, So sometimes it's the real estate developers. Before 2011, it's quite often the real estate developers. After 2011, it's more likely to be the local authorities. And I mean, even in my... A uh, former job as a correspondent in China, we would also see some of this type of thuggishness, you know, when you go to a place or Xinjiang, a place like that, a sensitive area, and you get kind of chased out by thugs or, or, or intimidated in various ways. I, I'm interested in the kind of the marketplace for violence, the economic marketplace. And Annette, you've written the daily rate for a thug can be as little as 100 yuan. That's only $15 a day. I mean, isn't the price of violence actually dangerously low now? You know, that's a very interesting question. Um, so I've heard this 100 yuan rate across several places in China, from coastal cities to, you know, you know, rural, some provinces that I wouldn't name. I think the rate is to get things done. And violence is only used occasionally. A lot of that is just intimidation or the presence of someone uh, with tattoos. You know, someone who looks scary and turn up at your doorstep in the middle of the night. That's often quite quite sufficient to scare to scare people off. And I mean, Michael, you've been writing about this uh, sort of Han Chinese vigilantes in Xinjiang. Did you have any sense of whether they are also, you know, kind of for hire for a hundred yuan a day, this kind of thing? The interesting thing in terms of, again, the sort of the context-dependent nature of this um, in Xinjiang is to think about um, sort of recent developments is, is really framed by uh, the inter-ethnic rioting in Urumqi in, in 2009, and that's kind of where this issue of 
Han vigilantism kind of comes up is that it seemed to show up, at least for some, that there was a gap in the state's ability to provide security, in certainly in Urumqi at that time, um, where you had uh, sort of days of rioting, where you had uh, Han vigilante groups on the sort of second day or so within the within this process of violence, roaming the streets looking for, for Uyghur and other ethnic minority people to either beat up or kill uh, businesses to burn and so on. And it's really from that point onward that you see um, a much more concerted effort uh, by the authorities to start investing more in employing more individuals within uh, the security uh, environment. So whether that is uh, recruiting more uh, police officers into uh, the regular police, uh, recruiting more people's armed police, stationing greater numbers of, 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 I suppose, state, very overtly oriented state coercive capacity uh, and you then have on top of that after 2012 2013 the implementation of sort of the grid management system uh, and the development of so-called convenience police stations which was of course pioneered in, in Tibet under Chen Chen Guo uh, before he came to Xinjiang uh, so you see the sort of mirroring process and of course it's taken on a much greater scale in Xinjiang um, so what's interesting now is to and this is something that is really an open question it's interesting to think about what is the hierarchy in a sense of agents of state coercion in Xinjiang now uh, given the scale of the re-education system and the surveillance state in, in Xinjiang um, has the the need for manpower in a sense declined given the seeming greater reliance on the high-tech elements of surveillance or not obviously the tech side still requires manpower it still requires people to sit in command centers and collate all the data and so on but you would suspect that there might be particular incentives just to not hire the same amount of people uh, mm, right. within within the security agencies, but this is something I don't have any any particular evidence on. It's just something to, to speculate uh, about, really. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at the number of layers, I mean, there's one researcher that estimated that there's more than half a dozen agencies involved in coercion yeah. in Xinjiang. Mm. But even if you look at, say, a wealthy Han urban area, you have so many different levels, you know, from the army to the mm. overworked cops to the Chengguan to the black jails to round up petitioners, you know, all the way down to uh, thugs for hire. Mm. So, I mean, why so many enforcers and, and how do they all work together? You know, surely they get in each other's way if you've got so many different levels answering to different people. Yeah, I mean, this is a, an interesting... I mean, in terms of Xinjiang, I mean, you have uh, certainly, I think, a much greater reliance sort of uh, in the 2000s on the, people, on the people's armed police, I think, uh, rather than other, other agents of, of state coercion. I mean, certainly the PLA is and has a presence in Xinjiang, but it's kind of in the background. Um, and although in terms of, you know, doctrinal requirements, the PLA, you know, talks about the need to prepare for, you know, military operations other than war, of which internal security sort of uh, operations are a part of that. It seems to be uh, the party state is loath to directly use the PLA in those kind of circumstances, much more reliant on people's armed police, uh, Ministry of State Security, private contractors and thugs thugs for hire as well. So I think what is interesting in this COVID-19 episode is so much has been written about surveillance technology. Um, so this guy from New York Times who specializes in technology reporting, you know, writes about technology surveillance in China all the time. But in COVID-19, you see the strategies that have been deployed to fight the virus. It's so low tech. It's so, it's so human using man power resources, things that they, which is, which is what Michael mentioned earlier, second nature 
to a lot of uh, bureaucracies, it is so much imprinted in people's mind that in crisis mode, we resort to what we know best, which is mobilizing the masses, mobilizing the society, mobilizing people, neighborhood committees, mm-hmm. village village committees, the activists, the volunteers, people with red armband to do the job. Uh, forget about the technologies. They are just too high tech for for most of us. Yeah. So so I th- so I th- so I think to go back to Graham's question, you know, you have you might have eight layers of coercive agents, but I think those agents operate differently in different places, and in implementing different sort of policies in very coordinated uh, policies and regions such as in Xinjiang, I think we see the de- deployment of coercive agents at the very very top, those uh, who are highly trained, high tech invested a lot of resources in them. But on everyday basis, it's really the bottom half. You know, um, everyday type of agents, the chengguan, the thugs were hire, people who are not paid well, who are not well-trained, low-tech, low resources, but they are deployed on an everyday basis. And a lot of them are leifeng, uh, modern-day leifeng in disguise. Um, Lynette, I have, coming back to what Michael was saying about the way things played out in Xinjiang, I couldn't help but think about the parallels to Hong Kong because for the first time we saw thugs for hire in August attacking people uh, in a train. And then since then, in the the budget that's just passed, we've seen this massive, massive hike in the the budget for police, for security in, in Hong Kong. I mean, I really guess I've got two questions. Why would the authorities want to allow thugs for hire in Hong Kong? And, you know, is this is this a Xinjiang playbook? Um, yes and no. Um, so I think the CCP's repressive strategy in Hong Kong is one of maximizing the benefits while minimizing the cost, meaning that they you do not see PLA or PAP out on the street of Hong Kong. The people, the repressive agents, the public face of repression in Hong Kong are the Hong Kong police force, right? Using excessive uh, brutality, uh, vigilante violence, the thugs, the thugs were hired, who are essentially part of Hong Kong's uh, United Front work. These are people who are, who are connected with the landlords, with the Fujianbang, with the uh, people who own land in Yuanlang. And they, and they, they are indirectly then connected back to uh, the CCP in Beijing. So the Fujianbang is people from Fujian and the people who own land, Yunlong is in the new territory. So you're right. t- talking about kind of traditional landowners. Right? Yes, traditional landowners, and they have very close connection with, uh, with the CCP. So from the CCP's perspective, uh, they, are, they are not getting the, the blame of the repression. So what is being, so people who are suffering the uh, decline in legitimacy is Carrie Lam's uh, falling popularity, uh, Hong Kong government declining le- legitimacy. While, you know, so the CCP is able to maximize the benefits while uh, minimizing the cost in a way. Um, and the other aspect is, I think, you know, we are probably going to see this sort of strategy continues because there's no reason for CCP to change the strategy while while they still benefit from it. So in that sense, I think it is quite different from, from what is going on in Xinjiang. But then again, Hong Kong is very different from Xinjiang. Um, how many people manage to get into Xinjiang? But 
everyone you know gets to go to Hong Kong until <laughs> until very recently. Okay, let's circle back to the question of legitimacy and violence. I mean, Michael, if you if you follow sociologist Max Weber, the state should have a monopoly over violence. So this creation of a market for violence, um, whether it be in Xinjiang or elsewhere, surely this delegitimizes the state, not just in the eyes of the Uyghur, which possibly the government doesn't care about, but also in the eyes of Han Chinese in, in Xinjiang. I think there definitely is an element of, of that. I mean, we don't really know... Uh, a great deal about, you know, an ordinary Han Chinese perspective on what's happening in Xinjiang. So uh, Han Chinese living in in major centres in in Xinjiang. Um, There has been some anecdotal reporting of people leaving Xinjiang uh, simply because of the situation, uh, fears that the uh, systematic clampdown on the region is no good for for business, no good for, for, for the economy. Yet at the same time, you have greater input of state actors in an economic sense, in the economy that's sort of stabilised the economy. So there's there's a question here about what ultimately is the source of legitimacy, I suppose, for the Chinese Communist Party. Um, Is it context-dependent in particular regions, say Xinjiang or Hong Kong, or is there sort of a common denominator across the PRC. I mean, does I mean, sort of the, the sort of conven- uh, conventional wisdom is that you know this is it's really about so-called performance legitimacy. As long as the party can deliver certain rates of economic growth, development, uh, certain levels of public goods uh, to the population, very broadly speaking, is that it will maintain some form of legitimacy or perhaps a grudging legitimacy. I'm not really sure if that has legs. Certainly, it doesn't have legs in Xinjiang. Um, depending, if, certainly, if you're a non-Han Chinese minority. Um, so, it really, I suppose, depends on how we define this question of legitimacy. What is the ultimate wellspring of legitimacy? Elena, I just want to ask you about this question of the monopoly over violence and how you understand what's happening in Hong Kong in those terms. I mean, do you think the calculation has been made that the government of Carrie Lam has so little legitimacy that it doesn't matter what happens to it? Why do you think this strategy is continuing to be used? So when we speak about legitimacy, um, legitimacy matters a great deal for central government. It matters very little, relatively little for local authorities. When we speak of regime stability and regime legitimacy, it is the overall national regime that we speak of. Local authorities, they care about uh, whether they have enough budgets to get to get things done. They care about day-to-day tasks, not the sort of uh, conceptual, abstract uh, things like legitimacy, right? So, so when it comes to Hong Kong, Xinjiang, more coordinated type of repression, I think they really feature legitimacy very prominently in their calculation. But when it comes to everyday repression, thugs, thugs for hire, carried out by local authorities, uh, legitimacy is very uh, down low in, um, in the calculation. So you're almost saying that these local officials expect to be hated. It's sort of almost part of their job. Because, you know, a couple of years later, if they get their job done, they get promoted, they get sent somewhere else, you know, they don't care about it anymore. Yeah. You know, mm. there's a concept of uh, rolling um, bandits mm. and stationary bandits. A lot of them, they want to get things done in order to become roving bandits. They are not stationary. It is the central government that is actually 
stationary that has to care about long-term legitimacy. Mm. And, and there was this phrase in, in Anhui that really captured it well. They would say, uh, basically, above there is hope, um, below there is despair. Yes. And that sort of framed their priorities. Yes. And one thing I love from your work when you're talking about the, what's what's below uh, and how they get things done is there are all of these middlemen, these huangnyo that pay right. bribes to keep people quiet, to make sure the people above don't find out. But who are these middlemen and, and how do they go about their work? Right. So this goes back to Louisa's question about this marketplace. I've observed in Shanghai, it's actually very common in Shanghai. I just accidentally bump into this Huangnyo. It's a middle person who is seeking profit. Profit between uh, people who want more compensation who would otherwise, if they don't get compensated properly, they might take their grievance out to the street to protest. In between these people and demolition office, who just wants to implement the demolition project as soon as possible, right? So they may have some spare cash sitting around, which would be doled out to pacify uh, unhappy people anyway. So this middleman comes in and bridge in between these two parties, uh, people who are unhappy, who want more more compensation, they need to establish trust with these uh, residents and then bargain on their behalf with the demolition office for more compensation. And then more compensation is then split 50-50 between the residents and the Huangniu or the intermediary. And you can imagine that the 50% that the Huangniu gets is then split with someone with demolition office. So... It's a win-win-win-win-win situation. No one has the incentive to become a whistleblower. So I guess my question for both of you, I mean, when you've got a state that is using bribery and violence in an extra-legal type of way at local levels across the country, at what point does the CCP itself cross the line and become a thug government or has it already crossed that line? Michael, you first. <laughs> well, <laughs> not, not quite sure exactly where to jump in on that one. Um, look, in terms of uh, sort of maybe a way into this for me anyway is that this issue of legitimacy is that um, do we actually have to take, and this is sort of focusing on the central government uh, and their agents certainly in places like Xinjiang, is do we actually have to take what they say seriously in terms of the ideological underpinnings. Uh, so, for instance, in Xinjiang, about the ideological underpinnings of re-education, um, the more and more we look at it, the more and more it looks, certainly from my perspective, as a form of cultural cultural genocide. Um, yet the party frame has framed it more in the trajectory of sort of this remoulding of individuals and its connection to modernisation and development, which, of, of course, the party being a a good Marxist, good Marxist-Leninist materialist is, you know, there's a teleological endpoint here that's going to be going to be reached. Um, so, do we actually have to take that ideology seriously? And, and you know, for instance, what what do the top leadership, uh, what do they actually believe they're doing? Do they do, do they actually believe in what they're telling everybody that they're doing? I think is the is the important question to ask. And given the the the, the nature and has and, and and the seriousness with which the party takes ideology i think we do have to take them seriously and sort of gets to this question that you, i think you asked Lynette earlier about you know the legitimacy vis-a-vis -vis hong kong um, does the does the central government actually care i think it does but the question is 
perhaps they don't care in the same way in which we care as external observers. Um, they actually might see what they're doing as highly effective. Um, and I think that might be the case in Xinjiang as well. And there might be reasons for them thinking that it's effective. So, for instance, in Xinjiang, they seem to believe that this, this type of process, so re-education, particularly how it was rethought of vis-a-vis -vis Falun Gong in the 1990s, I think that they believe that that worked in suppressing Falun Gong and controlling it. Uh, and so this has been uh, rolled out, in a sense, uh, slightly modified to, to the case, situation in Xinjiang. So they believe these kind of mechanisms work, whereas, of course, as external observers, we're sitting here and saying, well, how can they actually do this? When, in fact, there is a, there's this issue here of utility that perhaps we haven't quite factored into our, into our uh, perspectives. I do notice you haven't quite answered my question. Lynette, no. is... is <laughs> but, it's, but it's a good answer nonetheless. It is a good answer. But, Lynette, is, is China becoming a thug state? Overall picture, no. Depending on how you how you de you define thugs, um, I think it's a it's a very sophisticated coercive state. If we talk about if what you mean by thugs is you know very um, crude and crude type of you know everyday violence, um, yes, we do see that a lot. It's very commonplace on an everyday basis uh, throughout most places in China, uh, the periphery of the big cities as well as, as in the rural areas, not so much in inner core of cities for obvious reasons. But but overall, I think central government is a, is a very sophisticated, uh, coercive state, which I would I, I wouldn't call it a thuggish state because because I, th I think that's that's not giving it the credit that, you know, for the sophisticated thinking behind their state repression. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's way beyond what the word thugs could, could possibly describe. That's also a very elegant answer, <laughs> depending on definition of thug. Yeah, so one thing that Michael mentioned, I think really ties to what Louisa said, is um, the way this is framed uh, is about individual sujo or individual quality that, that you sell it to the people as you're trying to raise the, yep. the individual Uyghur mm. quality. Um, so in a way, are we looking at this the wrong way? Because a much more effective than, than thuggery is when you can get the citizenry mm -hmm. to police themselves and then you're sort of taking yourself out of the equation if people themselves make judgments that get what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hate to drop the, the F word here, but this is, you know, Foucauldian sort of perspective here. I mean, this is, this, if, you, if you think back to the way in which Foucault describes the operation of, you know, the panoptic mechanism here, he says the, essentially the genius of it is that you actually end up having people policing themselves, so the conduct of conduct, right? Um, and so in some ways um, what's happening in Xinjiang, I think, is almost a template. It's almost as if the party theoreticians have somehow come across Foucault over the last two or three decades and almost picked it up and said, oh, this is, this is a template for how we can, uh, in a sense, uh, modernise the party's approach to, to governance. Uh, this is a template for uh, the facilitation of all our goals, uh, you know, ensuring that the CCP remains in power, ensuring uh, economic growth and development and also, also ensuring this notion of, you know, high-quality 
uh, responsible citizens as well. So you have these interlinkages between, you know, the more overt forms of state coercion, you know, the re-education camps, for instance, in Xinjiang, but also the 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 aspiration for the rollout of these webs of technological surveillance, um, ranging from those that are used in Xinjiang uh, through to some of the perhaps more benign forms that are used elsewhere, where you have this idea that you will actually have the citizen taking part in their own surveillance. Uh, in some senses, willingly you know, pr- providing data, providing information, right. and so on. So again, it sort of it links nicely to, to Lynette's point to answer about whether or not the, the CCP is a thuggish government. It doesn't quite do it credit. I mean, there is some real, <laughs> there's some there's some real thinking here that's going on behind this process, um, and, and ultimately that goal of keeping the CCP in power. So can I just sum up and tell me if this is what you're really saying? Are you saying that? The structural violence is being embedded inside people's brains. <laughs> uh, and if that's what you're saying, is does that mean that what we are seeing in Xinjiang, you use the word template, is that um, we are seeing some of these measures being rolled out against Muslim populations elsewhere. I mean, is that going to be the next step? Yeah, again, this is, that's a great, great question. Um, in terms of, I mean, obviously the, the Xinjiang template is a, is a very extreme form, um, but nevertheless, I think there are some common elements to it. I mean, again, it's sort of encapsulated in that idea of governmentality, but also that notion of embedding um, individuals conducting their own conduct. It's not. It's also something that I've been thinking about uh, recently. Is that it's not necessarily something that is unique to the PRC. I think you know, if you're thinking back to Foucault here and his concept of the panopticon and governmentality, what he was talking about, or what he was describing, was really uh, what he framed as the genealogy of the modern state um, in terms of the liberal modern state as well. Now we don't like to think of the CCP as adapting elements of uh, various forms of the liberal modern state uh, to to its objective of repression of particular minorities, subsections of the population. Yet I think there is a link in terms of how the party now conceives of the best modes, or sorry, not the best, that's probably the wrong term, the most efficient mode uh, of governance, the most efficient mode uh, by which you can stay in power and achieve, and achieve these these large scale objectives, you know, the China Dream, uh, returning China to its place as the preeminent power in, in in Asia, and so on and so forth. So I think that there are multiple linkages here. So on the one hand, yes, China is a unique example, but there they really do think there are parallels that go across other other domains as well. I, th- I think community policing is is very interesting, and I think community policing is very uh, China specific. If you look at Soviet Union, a lot of policing is actually done by secret agent. So formal agent is repression, Soviet Union style. But China is really informal policing, uh, mobilizing ordinary people to do policing. Community, two different type of approaches, almost like Stalin versus Mao. Mao believes in people. Stalin believes in his uh, coercive agents, formal coercive agents versus the people, um, which is probably why uh, China, China's authoritarian system has lasted much longer than the former Soviet Union does. Well, I think they're, they're about on par now. I think China's entering its 70s, and which we is would, where they fell we out. Would, of. We would see how Sidada uh, yes. will do in the next couple of years. We, we will see. Yeah, we will see. <laughs> 
Lynette, Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Lynette Ong and Michael Clark, and to my co-host, Louisa Lim, who's still suffering from the bushfires. Our background research is by Julia Bergen, editing by Andy Hazel, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now. <laughs>